But the closing of Rikers is an enormous undertaking that is not simply about physical change and it's not simply about transferring people from one building to another. It's about complete system change, both as far as the justice system and also as far as what happens inside the jails. Welcome to Vardir. I'm your host, Skylar Dom, and today I'm talking to Elizabeth Glazer, the director of the New York City Mayor's Office of Criminal Justice. We're discussing the process of closing Rikers Island, one of the most notorious jails in the country, which after significant community activism, Mayor Bill de Blasio has committed to closing. Closing Rikers requires a big push to simply get more people out of jail. Because almost all parts of the criminal legal system feed into jail, closing Rikers is a lens to look at all kinds of reform throughout the system, like court delays or bail reform. I'm also fascinated by this project because it is an incredible challenge in managing change, which we'll talk about in this episode. And finally, Closing Rikers is a moment for transformation, and Ms. Glazer will talk about the importance of design and reimagining jail as they replace Rikers. There are many people um, who listen to this podcast who are not from New York, <laughs> uh, not even from the United States. So what, what is Rikers? So uh, New York City has a jail system like every other city in the uh, in this country where people are kept who are either being held before trial or people who have been sentenced to short prison or short jail terms, meaning less than a year. People who are sentenced for more serious stuff go to the state system, to state prisons. So our jail um, is called Rikers. Uh, it is actually a series of 10 jails that sits on an island uh, it, off of one of our boroughs, off of Queens, um, as well as four uh, local jails, one in each of our boroughs in Manhattan and Brooklyn, Queens and the Bronx. And so we have, just to sort of level set a little bit, you know, we're living in an age of mass incarceration in which quite rightly there's been a lot of attention about overuse um, over the past few decades of enforcement and incarceration. And in that context, Rikers, you know, 20 years ago was twice the population it is today. And today, New York City has the lowest incarceration rate, really by a long shot, than any other major city um, in the U.S. So we're at about 150 per 100,000 residents, to give you a sense of sort of the most egregious outlier, potentially, Philadelphia is at about 800. And behind that number lie a lot of other issues, policy and other things. So um, we're glad to start at that low level. We're glad to have spent the last four years of this particular administration really in a very intentional way driving that number down through a whole series of efforts. But the closing of Rikers is an enormous undertaking that is not simply about physical change and it's not simply about transferring people from one building to another. It's about complete system change, both as far as the justice system and also as far as what happens inside the jails. So why is Rikers closing? So I think there's a pretty universal sense in New York City of that um, 
a couple of things. One, it is simply better practice as a society for people who have been arrested and who have been detained or sentenced um, to be close to their families, to their lawyers, to be more engaged and have um, more of a connection to the city itself. And as is, getting to Rikers requires, I think it's like a couple different public transit options that take about, my understanding is it's basically a day trip. It's it's hard it's hard to get to. <laughs> yeah. There are obviously security concern, you know, uh, uh, issues getting into Rikers as there are with you know all correctional facilities, um, and so the notion that people can visit more easily, um, that you normalize life inside, is an important thing. The second thing is is that it's it's an old and dilapidated system, and uh, when you try to make improvements, the question is, do you continue to invest in uh, a physical infrastructure uh, that is not optimal at best, or do you try to think new about it? Um, and so there's an opportunity here because uh, design is not simply about, you know, how it, a building is arranged, design can have a very significant impact in the way people behave and how they view themselves and their own relationship, how people in a community view the particular uh, institution. You know, are jails a civic asset or are they simply a pariah that should be hidden away? So I think, you know, there was a justice reason and there were sort of some very fundamental you know, uh, concrete reasons. And I think it's 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 worth noting that the the, the problems with with Rikers sort of disproportionately impact a certain subset of New Yorkers, right? Where um, uh, and I think that sadly that's true across the country. The vast majority of the people who end up in jail are from communities of color, and I uh, and that's a big issue. Having established what Rikers is, and then that it needs to be closed. And I have no idea if this is if this is how this works, but so figuratively speaking, the mayor announces, okay, we're going to close Rikers within the next 10 years. And the next day, he, he walks into your office and says, all right, this is what we're doing. What's the plan? Yeah, that, that seems to me like an unenviable, an enviable job in, in the sense that it's a very interesting um, and difficult you know, challenge to tackle but also a, a tough job. So how do you go about breaking down that problem? Totally. So um, so I think the first thing is it's really a catalyzing thing to say that you're going to close Rikers. And in some ways, it's really just a trope for many, many other things that have to happen, meaning complete system change. Because closing Rikers isn't up to the mayor. It's up to judges and prosecutors and defenders and New Yorkers themselves, how <laughs> people behave or don't behave on the street, right? So, but everybody has to kick in in order for this to happen. And so to have a single goal that everybody is pointed to is actually quite a helpful thing in trying to sort of knit together what otherwise is an incredibly complicated problem. So uh, uh, the way I think about it and the way we sort of break it down is there are functional issues and there are big system issues and they're intersected. And the functional issues are 
how many people do we have, <laughs> who do we have, and where can we put them? So the first thing is we have now about 9,000 folks in our jails, both on the island and off the island. We have about 2,500 beds off the island, which is where we want to get to. So the, the difference, you know, about, uh, you know, five or 6,000 people is who we have to move off, so we have to find space for them. So the ultimate goal is to, is not to like build a better facility on Rikers Island, it's to move people into, as you said, sort of jails closer to their communities. Exactly. Okay. So our, 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 what we need to do is take the 7,000 people who are currently on Rikers and figure out how to fit them into our borough jails. Mm -hmm. Only 2,500 of them can be fit into our borough jails, mm -hmm. so we must get that population down um, for a whole array of reasons that I can explain to you. One, obviously, is a justice matter. You want to use jail as parsimoniously as possible. Um, but two, you want to make sure that, um, that you are building as few jails as possible. Because in the city of New York, as I'm sure in many cities across the country, there is a whole process to building public facilities um, that require the approval of community boards, of um, you know a whole array of, uh, of regulatory uh, oversight boards, et cetera. And that very significant issue of what does the neighborhood think about having a jail next to them? What do the elected officials think about having a jail in their neighborhood? is a very crucial thing. And so in this city, we've gotten quite a bit of support from elected officials, but this has to be a very, very inclusive process as we figure out what the jails will look like, where would they go, that ensures that New Yorkers themselves indeed view jails as a civic asset and that it becomes an integrated part of the neighborhood. And what will the... Well, let's get... I, I want to come back to the jails um, because mm -hmm. that's sort of a, a qualitative change. Yep. But uh, you were talking about quantitative change, right? Mm -hmm. How do we get from the sort of 8,700 that you're at now down to a number that you can actually feasibly place in community jails? So how how do you do that? How right. do you get that number down? Probably. So so we've had about a 20% decline in our jail population over the past four years, which is one of the steepest declines we've had in several decades through a very intentional process that we're continuing and that we sort of probe every day to find other places to go. But the first thing that we do is think about what actually, what actually makes a jail population, the size of a jail population, go up or down. And it's really two things. It's the number of people who go in, and it's how long they stay. So the first thing is, is everybody who's in the jail somebody who should be in jail? Should low-risk folks, medium-risk folks actually be in jail? And if they are in jail, why are they in jail? So, and sometimes the answer to that question is, the judge doesn't really have an option between you're released and you're in. And so they err on the side of you're in. So to address that problem, let's try and winnow out sort of low-risk, medium-risk guys and gals. 
we instituted what's essentially a diversion program. They called supervised release. Um, we only choose incredibly bureaucratic names that you can then not remember. But, um, <coughs> and this gives judges an option to to do something in between. So yes, you can you can leave the courtroom and you know continue to live at home and go to your go to work. But we're going to check in with you. There'll anything from text messages. Please remember to go to court to something, you know, a little bit more significant. Uh, it's been an enormously successful program. We think that it's uh, a big driver in the reduction of our jail population. And that's sort of one example. The second thing is we have we do have a a group of city sentenced folks, right? Meaning that they. They are actually post-trial. They've been convicted, right. and they've been sentenced to less than a year. Exactly. And about half of those folks are under 30 days, have sentences of under 30 days. So the question is, is there something that would be more effective than a 30-day jail sentence in stopping reoffending and getting people on a path to a more productive life? And we think the answer is yet yes, and we've implemented now another program that, again, gives ju judges the option with respect to a city sentence, instead of putting them in Rikers, you could put them in, into this program that will permit certain skills, that will do some cognitive behavioral therapy, et cetera. And we're very hopeful that that will actually not only reduce the number of people coming in in the first place, but also will reduce the amount of reoffending right. that has people readmitted. Is that different than... Um is it New Start, or is that, is that a diversion program for people who are pre-trial? Uh, new Start is the exactly New Start is the is the city sentence thing. Oh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So, and that's for people with sentences of less than ten days. Less than thirty. Less than thirty. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Uh, um, and then the question is, you know, we look very hard at what sort of what all those populations are to see if this ends up being successful. Do we go to sixty days, mm -hmm. et cetera? But all of these decisions, whether it's supervised release or whether it's you know city sentence, has to be made together with judges, prosecutors, defenders, because every in order for the program to be used, everybody has to want to do it. There has to be take up. So one big thing is just stopping people from coming in and stopping the right people from coming in. The second piece is reducing the amount of time that people stay in jail. So before yep. we before we leave the, yep. the number of people, um, I just wanted to uh, talk quickly about bail reform. Yeah, absolutely. Because um, I know that that's been a conversation that's taking place in New York quite a lot. So how do, how does how does bail factor into this? So we think bail reform could be an enor have an enormous impact on our jail population. The governor has recently proposed a, a, a reform that would eliminate cash bail. We think that would have quite an impact on our jail population, and we think as a matter of fairness, it's the right thing to do. In the interim, because it's so hard, in our state at least, to get legislation passed, and there are a lot of strong views on many sides of the bail issue, we are doing everything we can to affect bail reform, even if we don't have the statute. So supervised release is a piece of that. We have a big focus on those folks who 
stay for less than a week. So this is what I think of as kind of meaningless jail. About 75% of the people who actually make bail make it in that first week. Why? Because they were arrested at 4 and the bus to Rikers left at 6 and they didn't have time. Because they have a warrant that ends up being cleared because it's old. So these are sort of the physical and other impediments to making bail. The judge meant the person to be out. It's just that physically they couldn't put it together in time. So we have bail expediters that literally, you know, sort of uh, call the family and organize the bail to be made. They've been quite um, effective. We have a bail fund. We have a number of other things that were um, that are either in process or implemented, and we've seen um, that population start to shrink. Yeah, I, I guess it, it's interesting to hear you talk about sort of the things within your control versus the things outside of yeah. your control. And I wonder how, I, w I wonder what that process is like, sort of having to collaborate across so many different stakeholders. Yeah. So, I mean, I think it's, it is actually the question. You know, you have a justice system that has no boss, yeah. right? We have mayoral agencies, police and corrections. We have independently elected DAs. We have a state court system. We have a state prison system that actually has a piece of Rikers. About 10% of our folks are state, are functionally state prisoners. They're parole violators. And you have a defender system whose only job is to zealously defend their client. And yet all of those, and yet the system, the system is hydraulic, and somehow you have to link all these things together in order to affect reform. And when I think about the thing that probably makes most people's eyes glaze over, but actually is such a crucial um, uh, initiative, both for justice and for reducing the population, it's how do we shrink the time it takes to actually dispose of a case? And that requires everybody. It's about the judges and making sure that the adjournments are not too long um, and that the court appearances are meaningful. Prosecutors and defenders have a piece there. It's about the corrections department actually getting folks to court on time. It's about the architecture of the courthouse, where if there are not enough meeting rooms for lawyers and their clients, a case gets kicked over. And all of those pieces have to be knitted together and to get some agreement to say, you know what, there should be some milestones between how, between how, how much time really should there be between adjournments? How many adjournments should there be? How much, how much time should it really take between indictment and your arraignment? So it's, it's a big and complicated system, but I think there's a lot of commitment in the city to get it done and a lot of work that has led to that 20% reduction in population and hopefully will lead to uh, reducing the population to 5,000. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that I love about the, the Close Rikers effort is it is a unifying mm -hmm. sort of mission for yep. all of these sort of disparate stakeholders. Like the, the court delay issue was an issue in New York before the decision to close Rikers and now that feeds into, it feeds into this same um, this same issue, whereas before it was this, I, you know, it's like this enormous intractable. Right. It's everything in yeah. service of this one, one <coughs> goal, even though it has so much broader 
uh, implications there. Right. So the the court the court delay question gets to this the second prong that I cut you off from, yeah, yeah. which is the the length of time that people spend on um, on Rikers, mm -hmm. which obviously court delay feeds into that because it's if someone is pretrial, it's how long is their their case yep, yeah. take. So. Um, so what are some of the ways that you all or, or sort of related stakeholders are working on cutting the, the amount of time that people spend on Rikers? So the first thing, and I think this is true of kind of justice systems generally, um, is that it's amazing what actually looking at data will do for people <laughs> and looking at data across many systems. Um, so how many defendants are actually showing up court on time. How long is it really taking us to get from indictment to arraignment? How many adjournments do we actually have? Once somebody um, is convicted by plea or trial, how much time does it take or should it take between um, conviction and sentencing? And once somebody is sentenced, how long does it take for them to um, be picked up, let's say, by the state to go to state prison if that's you know, what the disposition is. Uh, so I think the first thing that was really, really important to our group, and we have a group of judges, prosecutors, defenders, the police department, corrections department, was to have some common metrics that we're all looking at across, across the different boroughs. And the boroughs are very different. Um, and then the second thing was to try to get to some agreement first as to how long do we think at each of those milestones it should take us to get there. And then the third thing is, and you know everything of course is always much more complicated once you look under the hood, is so what is it that's actually causing the delay? It's any one of those things that I've mentioned, but there are many, many other things. For example, people have multiple cases. How do we deal with that issue? Is there a way to reduce those multiple cases? Because maybe some of them are picked up in jail as their violence issues. Mm -hmm. um, is there a way to coordinate better among the prosecutors and the defenders in order to resolve those cases? It, or people who have mental illness issues uh, and who are sent out in order to be examined for, you know, for competency hearings. We see sort of big delays with that population, yeah. very small population, but often big delays, mm -hmm. sort of bouncing back and forth. So, so that's sort of how we approach it. We try to really rigorously hold ourselves to looking at the, the numbers, yeah. even though behind those numbers are very, very human stories and mm -hmm. very complicated issues. I love the idea of one of the things I've learned in business school is, you know, you are what you measure, right? As they say, you know, uh, uh, a goal without a plan is just a hope. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah, exactly, which is the sort of theme of this entire project, I guess. Yeah. Um, one way that, or eventually, I think, as you're looking at, at, at getting people off of Rikers, you're going to have to start to look at people who are charged with, quote, unquote, violent offenses. Mm -hmm. And I wonder sort of how you're thinking about that and, mm -hmm. and, and where they fit into all of this. I do think that's the question and the challenge for us. Um, we already have a population that's pretty closely hewed to risk. The charge isn't a proxy really for risk, but it's 
it's a rough approximation. So right now with our pretrial population, um, almost everybody is in for a felony. About half of them are in for violent felonies. As we continue to winnow down the population, obviously we want to take out all the low and medium risk folks, which will lead us and leave us with uh, uh, folks who have been charged with violent offenses. Um, I think that there are two things that would need to happen, one of which I think is very much within our grasp, and the other one requires a seismic culture change. The thing that's within our grasp is the one thing we can do with violent offenses um, is to shrink the amount of time that people are in by may having a more efficient, a more just process and justice system, and that's the thing that we sort of talked about. The second thing is, which is what requires the culture change, is what is the tolerance of judges, prosecutors, and New Yorkers to have people charged with violent offenses on the street? When you look at the literature, murderers do not actually have a high reoffense rate, but, but that is a very difficult decision for a judge to make and an unlikely decision for a judge to make for a whole bunch of other prudential reasons um, to put that person out on the street. The second way to sort of approach it and to sort of assure, um, to have that kind of change in thinking among judges, prosecutors, and New Yorkers is to really show that there are programs that can safely handle uh, folks who otherwise would be in jail. So in Boston, um, there's a very well-known program called ROCA that offers services uh, and supervision to uh, young men who have been charged with very serious offenses. And they have a very, very high success rate in both, in, in both rehabilitation, meaning ensuring that people then go on to have productive lives, but also, critically, in ensuring that people don't commit additional offenses. Yeah, I guess there's also a definitional question. I don't. I actually don't know the breakdown of this, but I would be interested to see under the category of quote-unquote like violent offenses what those actually are. Mm-hmm. Um, so it has, I mean, it has a technical definition, um, and then there are other things, right? So, um, you know, it's murder, robbery, rape, et cetera. Um, but uh, sometimes the misdemeanor offenses, the reason why we, we have very few misdemeanors who actually stay in, but when you look at what the breakdown of what that is, domestic violence is a big driver because assault um, is one of the misdemeanors. So you're right to, that you have to be a little bit more molecular about what the composition is when we sort of slap these big um, you know, these labels over very big categories of crimes. Yeah. Um, and, the, and the sort of risk of, I guess, like separating people's character versus what they're accused of doing, which is to your mm-hmm. point. Uh, and then there's the question of, like, practically speaking, people who did really bad things, are they going to do them again? But, uh, you know, it's interesting to hear. That it's, it's much a political question of, like, what are New Yorkers willing to tolerate? And, and that... And and frankly, that has to do with low-level offenses as well, Mm -hmm. right? So, 
um, should shoplifters be in or out? Should people who steal your iPod, pad, you know, pods be in yeah, or out? Whatever the newest eye yeah. thing is. Um, <laughs> so oftentimes folks who are committing these low-level offenses are committing lots and lots and lots and lots of them. They're people who are churning through our jails. Should they be in or out? Well, mm -hmm. some people would say, I don't actually have a tolerance for that. And others would say, this is really silly for that um, to be the, the bar. On the topic of people who cycle through the system quite a lot, slash dessert and mm -hmm. who deserves punishment, I love, I actually talk about all the, all the time, um, the program that New York is doing that is, it, it seems like it's a bit of a pilot program, but taking people who cycle through the system and just giving them stable housing and services. Yeah. No, it's fantastic. And, and I actually, this is also one of my favorite topics. I mean, I think this issue of, um, th that every jurisdiction is facing of people who are very high users cycle in and out of the justice system, and when they're not in the justice system for relatively low offenses are either in shelter or in hospitals. Mm -hmm. um, we've done a lot of work on them. And, you know, they're about, it's a countable number of people, about six to 700 people who have 15 stays or more over the last few years in each of those systems. They're often older. Um, they often suffer from uh, behavioral health issues. Uh, and the question is what to do with them uh, in order to interrupt that cycle, because clearly jail is not making it better. Supportive housing, meaning finding somebody a, an apartment and having, having services that will permit that person, once they have stable housing, to actually get either the medical care that they need or to help them find a job, um, has been proven over and over again to just slash admissions to jail, shelter, and uh, ER rooms. And that's been a very, very successful program here on a s small level. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think the challenge is then to think about what are some more nimble responses to that. Supportive housing is a very expensive and very, uh, uh, a very sort of big commitment. And so, is there anything? Is there any continuum that we could be along that would um, that would address these issues and interrupt that cycle? so that we can have more services and have a more universal approach. Switching gears a little bit, the closed Rikers sort of movement and decision seems to have originated with the very sort of hard and admirable work of, of activists. And um, I wonder how you sort of think about your role relative to, to activists. You know, when I'm researching the subject, there's quite a lot of you know, op-eds criticizing that this could be going faster, et cetera, mm -hmm. and yet, you clearly have to sort of work hand in hand with everybody. And I just wonder, like, that must be frustrating. <laughs> so, I mean, I think the advocates play a key and really important role. Um, and that if you're in government, uh, you're a public servant, but your your job is to to hear all ideas, to hopefully drive a few of your own, to to hear the criticism as well as just simply ideas, to take it seriously, to integrate it into your work. So I think it's a very important and very useful function, and we welcome it. You know, obviously, uh, 
you know, we'd also like to get credit from time to time for what, you know, if there is progress. Um, and we think there's been quite a bit. But, you know, advocates' role is to kind of shine a spotlight. Uh, and I think they've done that um, significantly. So back to the question of, of jails and, and sort of what this next generation of jails will look like. And how will incarceration qualitatively change mm -hmm. with, with this movement? So I think it's a great question. Um, I'm a big believer in the, um, the power of design of a building and of the shape of a neighborhood to change behavior. I think people act and feel differently about themselves when they're in a place that has natural light and uh, where the acoustics are good and all of that in the same way that you feel differently walking down a leafy street than one strewn with, yeah. you know, broken glass. Did you see there was a, I think it was in the New Yorker, I don't even know if I'm saying his name right, but I, Frank Gehry. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. project of, like, imagine with his students and totally. what a jail would look like. I've been doing that lately where I'm, I, like, will we'll go into a courthouse and think, I think his name is Ron Johnson. He's the guy who, like, started the Apple retail yeah, yeah. movement and then um, went, went over to JCPenney. And um, I wonder, like, if he was in charge of putting together a courthouse, what would, like, it would be completely, it would be run completely different, it would like, feel different. Like, did, so I, the idea of design is being... Um, I think it's crucial. To, yeah. And I think that the design has to... We want to be able to throw open the windows to new ideas and new design. We also want it to be rooted in reforms that are happening internally, right? Um, so you don't just want to relocate the problems that you've had before. Uh, and while design has an enormous power, I think, over behavior, it has to walk hand in hand with reforms that happen inside as well. Um, and so there's a lot of focus right now on both inmates and officers. Um, so for incarcerated people, how do we really make this a place of hope where there's, uh, where there's programming and routes out? Um, for officers, how do we support them in their profession, which is an incredibly difficult one, and ensure that they have sort of opportunities for advancement and fulfillment in that in that job, and then how, what is that relationship critically between the officers and uh, those who are incarcerated like? And so these things have to happen on parallel tracks, and the people who have the lived experience, whether officers or incarcerated people or others, um, have to be hand in hand with architects and designers and others um, as, as we begin to sort of figure out the plans for the buildings. Well, I think it'll be interesting to see what, you know, what these community jails end up looking like. And uh, a great example of the many ways that these efforts, although specific to New York City, can serve as an example for jurisdictions across the country. So uh, thank you for sitting down with me and thank you for, uh, for all the hard work. My pleasure. Thank you. Awesome. Thanks so much for listening. It seems like more and more people are finding the podcast and we'd really like to hear from you. So please rate and review on iTunes or Stitcher or wherever you're finding this podcast. Um, and please feel free to email us at wardierpodcast at gmail.com with any thoughts, concerns, questions, ideas for episodes. We, as I've said before, are particularly interested in hearing from and talking to people who have had 
direct experiences um, with the criminal legal system or whose lives have been directly touched by the system. Uh, that being said, I want to thank the people at the Criminal Justice Policy Program for their wonderful and ongoing support of this podcast, specifically Anna Wyke and Brooke Hopkins, and also the people at Poddington Bear for composing our theme music. And with that, we'll talk again in two weeks. <laughs>